Hello and welcome to Nightlight. The uh, Phillips translation of Romans chapter 12, the King James Version says, Don't be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Phillips translation, which is pretty often quoted, says, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your mind from within. Paul obviously doesn't assume that there's never going to be pressure. He assumes that everybody understands pressure is a constant. Pressure is a given. And pressure will at times be worse uh, in some ways than others. And as we approach the end of the age, just as birth pangs get closer closer and closer together, so the pressure gets more and more intense. I remember in 2005, Mary was standing in the kitchen of our home. And we just returned from England, and uh, we heard the news report of the bombings of the railways in England. And she was immediately in prayer for those who we know and love there, and, and several of those people that we were close to at that time were in the vicinity of those bombings and uh, affected by them. Thankfully protected, but still affected. And the Lord spoke to Mary that day, and he said, the pressures will begin to get more and more increased now, and they will not decrease until the close of the age. Well, That has proven to be true. The sense of pressure has increased and increased in many ways. Now, it's silly, really, for any American to speak of pressures increasing on us when we think of the suffering church, especially our brothers and sisters in Syria, Iraq, and the Sudan, China, North Korea, many other places I could name. And yet, Paul says, comparing themselves among themselves, they're not wise. We don't think the man with one broken leg should be able to get up and dance just because he doesn't have two broken legs. And so when we start comparing our brokenness or our weakness or our pressure with others who are under pressure, we're not going to come up with a wise conclusion about it. The kinds of pressures that we face, Paul says, come from without and come against us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Paul implies here in Romans 12 that there's a pushback against that pressure from the Holy Spirit within. And in that tug of war, so to speak, in in that dynamic, you are are either going to be deformed by the outward pressure or transformed by the inward pressure. And God is not the author of sin, and he's not the author of evil, but he is great enough and wise enough and good enough and creative enough and loving enough to take every bit of that dynamic and use it for our good and his glory. That's what Romans 8, 28 is talking about. All things are working together. God is not making all things happen that are evil. God's not the author of evil, but he takes everything 
and uses it if we're yielded to him to transform us into who he intends us to be. This is Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, which we're also probably probably pretty familiar with. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house and saw him working at the wheel. And the vessel that he was making from clay was spoiled in the hands of the potter. So he made it over, reworking it into another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the Lord said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does? Says the Lord, See, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, no parable is meant to be an exact parallel, but is a symbolic message. The, For instance, the 99 sheep were pictures of God's people, and the one that was lost is a picture of a lost individual. No one hears that parable and goes away thinking God literally means us to think of ourselves as woolly and a bit stupid. The point is not sheepness, but the heart of the shepherd in going after the one that's lost. That's the point. So here, the point of this story is not that we're all nothing but mindless, willless lumps of mud in God's hands. It's just the opposite of that. The point is that no matter how marred we are, no matter what form we may be in, the redemptive hand of the master potter can remake, redeem, and restore us. The very idea of our being nothing but a mud ball in his hand with no ability to respond to him is utterly contradicted by the very verses themselves. Verse 11, uh, the second half of verse 11, and then on in verse 12, it says, Return now each one from his evil ways and make your individual actions good and right. But they said, No, there is no use. We will walk after our own devices and do as the stubbornness of our own evil heart dictates. The image of the potter and the vessel is found several other places, like Isaiah chapter 45, verses 9 through 12, Isaiah 29, verse 16, and Isaiah 64, verse 8. And then there's Paul's commentary on these verses found in Romans chapter 9. Without going into full detail, it should be obvious that the message in this parable is that the good and right purposes of God can be trusted and that those who know that from their relationship with him should then rest in his molding work in us. It's foolish, rebellious, and mindlessly stupid for the clay to demand the potter to give account of himself to the clay. The potter can be trusted if we will entrust ourselves into his hands, but because we are not mere mud balls, we can rebel. We can dispute and argue against his good work for us. Some truly bad theology has been woven from these verses that seeks to make God nothing more than a cruel despot who can do whatever he pleases, even if it's evil, and the suffering mud ball is just to submit. That might fit a picture of Allah in Islam, but it's certainly not the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go back a few verses to Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 10. Verse 6 says, 
Can I not do with you as this potter has done with the marred clay? Well, what was it that he had done? He had taken the worthless mess and molded it back into a beautiful and useful vessel. The Lord is simply saying, as he so often does all through Scripture, listen, no matter how bad you've messed it up, I can redeem it, remold it, return goodness to it, if you will yield to me and not argue against my molding work. Then he applies this not only to individuals, but also to the entire nation and nations, and makes it clear that just as individuals can be remolded into something good, but can also resist that goodness and end up destroyed, so it is with nations also. At one time, I will suddenly speak concerning a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if the people of that nation turn from their evil, I will relent and reverse my decision concerning the evil that I thought to do to them. At another time, I will suddenly speak concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build it up and plant it. But if they do evil in my sight and reject my voice, then I will regret and reverse my decision concerning the good which I intended to benefit them. Therefore, say to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I am shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Return now, each one from his evil way. Reform your customs and make your individual actions right and good. But verse 12, they said, no, there's no use. We will walk after our own devices and we will each do the stubborn things that are in our own hearts, which our evil hearts dictate to us to do. This is an obvious call for repentance and return to God in order to reverse coming impending just deserved judgment. God has every right to judge and by his holy nature and goodness must judge, not must in the sense that he has a law he must obey, but by the very nature of his goodness he shall act eventually against evil. The evil is progressive But the use of the word suddenly, often in prophetic scripture, is a reference to the point when God sees there is no repentance, then the progressive evil is suddenly met with divine wrath. The wrath is sudden only to the human observer. It's the very wrath that was formed with each daily progressive embrace of evil. They formed the wrath by their choices, Romans 2, verses 4 through 5, are you willfully ignoring the fact that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But by your callous stubbornness of heart, you are storing up wrath and indignation for yourself on the day of wrath. So can we simplify this by saying that pressure of the sovereign hand of the Creator will cause two totally opposite results in those who trust his character and yield to his ways and his will. They press us into his image and likeness. But for those who reject him, the pressures become deforming and destroying pressures. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10. 
Godly grief and pain which God permits is directed in order to produce repentance and leads to life and freedom from evil and never brings regrets. But worldly sorrow, the sorrow of the pagan world, is deadly and ends in death. I think we all know enough about the sorrows of the world. We don't need to delineate anything about that. It's amazing to me how the enemy has successfully sold the lie to the world and even to some Christians that godliness is a little depressing and worldliness is fun. Mary and I spend a good deal of our time seeking to help those whose ungodliness has only been fun just for long enough for the terrible damage to be done to them and through them. And I don't say that with any sense of superiority since I know a great deal about what it means to be clay in the hands of the rescuing, redeeming potter. I say this with the deepest humility and gratitude that I do know the sorrows of the pagan world lead to death. And I'm learning more and more every day that the struggles and the battles and the pressures and conflicts of the godly not only lead eventually to victory and good and life, but as Paul says, they do not ever end up needing to be regretted once we have come through them. And he's not just talking preacher talk. He has every right to say this because if you back up a few pages with me, unless you're driving, don't do it then, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, he writes to the Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, the source of every ultimate comfort, who comforts us in every trouble or calamity or affliction, so that we may also be able to comfort those who are in any kind of trouble or distress with that very comfort which we ourselves have been comforted by God. For just as Christ's own sufferings fall to our lot, as they overflow upon his disciples and we share and experience them. So abundantly, so through Christ, comfort, his comfort also is shared abundantly by us. But if we are troubled, it is for your comfort. And if we are comforted, it, it's also for your comfort, which works in you as you endure our sufferings along with us. And our hope for you, that is, our confidence in the eventual good that's coming for you, that's what hope is, is ever unwavering and unshaken. As you share in our troubles, you also will share in our comfort. For we don't want you to be uninformed about the affliction and the oppressing difficulties and distresses that befell us when we were in Asia, how we were so utterly and unbearably weighed down and crushed that we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, we felt within ourselves that we had received the very sentence of death, but that was to keep us from trusting in our own selves instead of in God who raises the dead. For it is he who rescued us from such a perilous death, and he who will also rescue us. In him we have set our hope and confidence that he will again in the future deliver us from every danger and destruction and draw us to himself. While you are cooperating by your prayers for us, 
so the lips of many people turned toward God on our behalf will eventually cause great thanksgiving on our behalf because of the grace granted at the request of so many who have prayed. Paul says here, the relationship that you have with us when we're in pain is the same relationship that you're having with the Lord, uh, that we have with you and the Lord in your pain, and the same battle you engage in in prayer for us links you to us so that the same blessing and grace that's poured out on us gets poured out on you. That's a whole study in itself. Then chapter 4, verse 7, he says, but but in, in the face of all these pressures, these terrible battles that are so bad that the pressure of it makes us feel at times like we are going to be crushed and we, we feel like we've received a death sentence. He says, we have this treasure in vessels of clay. We possess this precious treasure of the presence of God in frail human vessels of clay so that the grandeur and greatness of the power may be shown to be from God and not from ourselves. Verse 80 says, we're pressed on every side. Again, comparing ourselves among ourselves, we're not wise. I don't don't want to pretend that I've ever known anything like the pressures so many of our brothers and sisters are facing in various parts of the world. Unto death, many of them. But if you, any of us who know anything about spiritual warfare, we know that there is a kind of darkness, a kind of oppression, a kind of oppressive pushing against us from the enemy through the world and the flesh and demons. Uh, just the whole panoply of, of warfare that can make a bright, sunshiny day feel like you're in a dungeon, that can make the gathering of friends around you feel like you are uh, in solitary confinement, that can make the uh, least demanding task seem undoable because of this debilitating sense of oppression that can come down over you. I remember uh, in 1979 driving down the highway in, on the Gulf Coast when I lived there. And the pressures coming at me uh, were striking against the pressures that were going on inside of me. And I felt like I was being crushed. There was, there was nothing happening that anybody could point to that would explain, well, this is, no wonder you feel so bad. No wonder you're, you're so under pressure. No wonder you feel like your skull is about to crack like an egg. Um, there was nothing like that. I couldn't have told anybody, well, look what I'm dealing with. No, this was an atmosphere. This was a, 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 a pressure If my eyes had been opened to see into the spirit world, I might have readily been able to point and say, look, no wonder. Look at this thing coming at me. But uh, I I just cried out to God. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a beautiful day, just like it is here today. Blue sky, sunshine, beautiful coastal wind blowing in my face. And I was in agony. And the Lord, I just cried out to God, this, this very articulate 
theologically intricate prayer. I said, God, please make it stop. Please make it stop. That was the prayer. Within a matter of seconds, it stopped. It just stopped. Now, some might say, well, that's psychosomatic, but anybody who's been through the kind of reality I'm describing knows better than to stick some silly psychobabble label on it. It wasn't psychosomatic. You could, you could not psych yourself up to be relieved of this kind of oppression. But within 48 hours, I found myself praying, Lord, bring it back. I know you're not the author of it. I know you're not the one causing it, but there's something you were doing in it that was for my good. And I know that you're watching over it, and I know that you will not allow it to get out of control. But I immediately experienced with the release of that pressure, the the backing up of that pressure, I, I experienced not freedom, but a sense of being a vine growing outside of its boundaries. I felt myself, I don't know, uh, how you how you would feel if you have terrible back pain and you, you're wearing a back brace and the back brace is uncomfortable. So you take the back brace off and all of your intestines ooze out in, through all the weak musculature of your midsection and you feel like you're just a pot plant that's growing outside of the pot and you're just losing your your boundaries and your definition and your sense of security and identity that's literally what I I began to feel I said lord bring it bring it back bring the pressure back and he did and this time the pressure was bad but this time something had changed inside of me i found myself able to yield myself into the hands of the master potter whose pressure was only for the purpose of my good, even though the, the pressure coming at me was evil, coming at me for not for my good. But the master potter took over the control of that dynamic and caused that to be turned for my good and resulted in a transformation inside of me that needed to occur. Now we saw in Jeremiah that God's heart is to redeem and restore and remake us, no matter how broken we are, into a renewed work of grace. If we will yield to him, there's so much hope and promise for good in this. It's hard to understand how it is that we've managed to turn this into the very opposite. Some read this and think, not of the promise of reformation or transformation, but they read it as a picture of some kind of brokenness of the marred vessel that the enemy comes in and adds adds all kind of negative interpretations to it and makes God look like he's really our enemy. Uh, something like, well, maybe once you could have been of some use to God, but you've messed your chance now. You're just a castaway. You're of no use to him. You're done. Now this leaves us right where the enemy always wants us to be. Passive, depressed, hopeless, and stuck in our mess. This then becomes a self-fulfilling demonic prophecy. Well, you were a vessel that was going to be honorable, but you messed it all up. And now 
God's decided to use you as a, a vessel of destruction instead of a vessel of honor. The scripture repeats this promise at least five times in various locations in scripture, folks, that today is the day of salvation. Today, if you will hear his voice, there is no time but today to take hold of God's promise to reshape our lives into a greater manifestation of his love and grace. We must grasp it today. That means today is the day you can begin to move forward again and get unstuck. It doesn't matter what a mess you've made of whatever it is. Today, if you will hear his voice, bring it to him and trust his pressure, that the pressure you're under is a good pressure, even if it seems like it's crushing you. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 19 through 21 says, The foundation of God stands sure, that the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but there's wood and earthware, some to honor and some for dishonor. Now, let me just mention here, the Greek doesn't really say dishonor. It says no honor. There's a difference between dishonor and no honor. Dishonor is to have honor stripped away like a a military man who has his rank torn off of his uniform uh, and he's disbarred. No honor is just that you never got to become what you were intended to be. You, you, You have no honor. And so... Uh, meaning not to be ridiculed, but simply you're not trusted with higher works, but you are left to menial, ignoble tasks. So whoever, Paul says in the next verse, whoever cleanses himself from what is ignoble and unclean will then himself become a vessel of honor and fit for every good work. That's not a hopeless picture of, well, you had a chance and you blew it and uh, you, you may never know what you could have been, but you sure will never know the, the, the goodness of what God intended. Uh, but you will know that it, you never will achieve it because you, you messed up. I mean, see, that, that, kind of, that kind of unknowing, well, I don't know, you know, I just, I just, I meet people like that pretty uh, fairly often. Uh, I, I just don't know whether I can ever be anything of value to God. Uh, my early days, I really made some foolish mistakes. Well, fiddlesticks. He who has begun a good work in you will finish it. And hear the word of the potter. Hear the promise of the potter. And bring yourself and put yourself in his capable, loving hands and let him do whatever is necessary to make you into a vessel he can trust. Romans 9, verse 21 and 22, has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same mass one vessel for honor and another for no honor? But what if God, although fully intending to show the awfulness of his wrath, still tolerates with much patience the vessels which are ripe for destruction? Now, why do I bring that verse in? 
I'm sitting here trying to comfort you and call you toward hope and believing that God will transform you no matter how much of a mess you might have made of things. And then I, I quote this terrible verse. Well, the reason I quote this terrible verse is this verse gets applied to Christians. And it, this verse doesn't apply to Christians. There are three categories of vessels in these verses we've looked at. Those of honor, those of no honor rather than dishonor, and those who are fitted for destruction. Now, without laboring the details here too much, which we really don't have time to do here, it's important to note that the reference to these which are made honorable are made so by the direct grace of God upon them. The Greek implication in this text is those who are honorable were made honorable by the grace of God. Those who are fitted for destruction, the Greek strongly implies that they do that themselves. God doesn't do that. They did that to themselves. So what about the middle category? Those who are not fitted for honor, but are being told they can be fitted for honor. They don't get there by their own merit, of course. Verse 16 says, So then God's gift is not a question of human will or human effort, but of God's mercy. So we know it's not of works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Yet, as we have seen in Jeremiah 18 and in other places, those who actively resist that mercy are left to stay pretty much where they are and thus become fitted eventually for destruction if they are evil and embracing evil, or at best, they just become those who have no honor. How do we work out what is totally of God's grace and mercy and what we are responsible to do? For according to the following scriptures, there is a responsibility that we have individually to respond to God's offer of mercy. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about the ongoing work of salvation and sanctification and cleansing and correction and remolding that goes on in us if we're really his from the moment we come to him. Listen to just, these are just a few verses of many that we could cite. 2 Timothy 2.21, whoever cleanses himself from what is dishonorable will be a vessel of honor. Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God within you that is working to will and to do his good pleasure. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that contaminates and defiles body and spirit and bring our consecration to completeness in the fear of the Lord. Now, when you find a therefore, you need to see what it's there for. What are the great promises that give us the power to cleanse ourselves? Paul says, therefore, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves. Well, what promises? Well, just back up to the end of chapter 6 and you'll see. Here's the promises. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. 
Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership does right living have with iniquity? What fellowship fellowship does light have with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and Belial, which is a Hebrew word for the master of bondage or being without value? It's a name of Satan, but it, it implies what what fellowship does Christ have with that which is of no value. In other words, if you really belong to him, why are you still relating to certain things that have no value, that are in Satan's realm? Why do you do that? What agreement can there be between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, even as God said, I will dwell in them and will walk with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So, Come out from among them and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord, and touch not that which is unclean, and I will kindly receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. If you return to Paul's other exhortations to cleanse ourselves, the ones we just looked at in like Second Timothy 2.21, whoever cleanses himself from from contact with these will be a vessel of honor. You realize that what the Lord is saying is if you really want to go on with me, it's totally going to be my grace that does it, but I'm waiting for you to cry out for that grace and, and ask me if you'll yield to me. I'll do it. As a young man who was very badly damaged and contaminated by every evil thing Paul is referring to here, I used to read these verses and all I felt from them was despair. It seemed as if what these verses were saying was, look, if you'll just deliver yourself from these evil things, then I'll deliver you from them. Or if you'll stop doing evil, then I will save you from evil. To me, it sounded like an emergency rescue worker saying, if you'll just save yourself from the burning building, then I will save you from the burning building. That obviously wrong interpretation was coming up from my own wounded, fatherless, orphaned heart with no clear understanding of the character of God and therefore misunderstanding the verses. God's not mocking us. He's not saying, if if you really want to be free, you know, well, set yourself free and then I'll know you want to be free and then I'll free you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you want to be free, my sovereign grace will free you. If, on the other hand, you really love your sin and want it, then you'll keep interacting with it, staying close to it, surrounding yourself with it, and holding it nearby you. It was in the very grip of my darkest sin that I cried out to Jesus one dark night at 4 a.m. to save me from it. And he did. No one watching the process would have ever for a moment mistaken it as the fruit of my own self-will or self-righteousness or self-improvement. It was all of grace alone. Yet I was cleansing myself from the evil by falling upon his grace and asking him to save me from it. The process was all of grace. The falterings and the failings, that was all of me. But the crying out to him 
was the work that he asked me to do in cooperation with him. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what I was doing. That's all I could do was fear and tremble. But he who begun a good work in us will finish it eventually. And so that's the way the process has been in my life ever since that night, some nearly 40 years ago now. So what is this process I refer to? Well, the process is pressure. Remember our opening verses from the Phillips translation of Romans 12, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold you from within. Well, there are two pressures coming at us if we belong to God. The pressure from outside us arising from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the resisting pressure from within, from the Holy Spirit, which pushes back against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And uh, in that conflict, there is a transformation that takes place in us, all by the hand of the loving potter. This conflict in God's wise and loving hands is the molding force that he uses to bring us into conformity with his will for us. If we yield to him and ask for it, he will do it. This is why James and Romans chapter 5 both refer to our rejoicing in the face of temptation, knowing that the battle we're in results in our eventually being crowned. And a crown is a sign of victory, a sign of overcoming, of conquest. When you understand that, you begin to understand all the references, for instance, in Revelation chapter 1 through 3, about to him who overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne as I overcame and sat in, with my father in his throne. Things like that. That's an aside here, but it's still very much to the point that our interpretation of the book of Revelation as being mainly to a church that is under terrible persecution and deprivation is really not an accurate interpretation. There are many references to the danger of abundance in Revelation, worldliness and materialism and pleasure as there are words of encouragement for those who are under real persecution. We tend to imagine the seven churches of Revelation as all being a tiny, persecuted, suffering minority. But if you study the historic facts of each one of those cities, persecution was in the minority of those cities. Most were a contingency of prosperous people living and working and doing business in the culture of the Roman world and enjoying all the advantages that that offered. Laodicea is a special example, but also Pergamum, Ephesus, and Thyatira. It would be more accurate to think of several modern American or European cities and their affluence and prosperity than we might, then we might begin to understand these verses more accurately and we would gain more insight into what they have to say to us in our particular situation, uh, their words are so full of warnings to not embrace the world at the expense of their own souls. So it seems, if you study it out, that the dire warnings are not for those suffering, but for those not suffering. As one teacher I heard recently stated, to cite an old adage, 
the book of Revelation is meant to both comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. The suffering church worldwide is now in many ways fulfilling the words of Hebrews chapter 11, what's called the hall of fame of faith. Hebrews 11, 37, 38, they are stoned to death, lured to renounce their faith, sawn asunder, slaughtered by the sword, going about wrapped in skins of sheep and goats, utterly destitute, oppressed, cruelly treated, living in mountains and caves and holes in the ground of whom the world is not even worthy. We, on the other hand, are much like the people of Revelation 3, who are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, yet don't realize we are poor and blind and miserable and naked. Pressure helps us gain the needed clear perspective. Whether your affliction is coming at you from without, through difficult circumstances, or through strong evil temptations, or through injury and betrayal from loved ones or friends, or whatever it may be, the pressure pushing back against that from within you is the responding redemptive power of the Holy Spirit within you, guiding you in how to overcome the negative outer pressure. And when the battle is over, you will have become a different, stronger, wiser, more spiritually developed person. Paul says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he says, After you suffered a while, you will be strengthened, established, and settled. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 2 that because of our union with Jesus, not merely our legal position, remember, but our real relationship with the real Jesus, because of that, we have access to the grace needed to overcome the outer pressure and to transform the inner pressure. Romans 5, 3 through 5. So let us be full of joy and triumph in our troubles, knowing that the pressure and hardship produces patience and unswerving endurance. And endurance develops tried and tested character. And character of this sort produces the habit of joyful confidence and hope. Confidence in your eternal salvation. Such hope never disappoints or deludes us or shames us. For God's love is being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That love is the power inside that presses against the evil pressure. Then again in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18, we've already mentioned this. We possess this precious treasure in frail human vessels of clay. I like that verse. So that the glory may be of God and not of us. We are hedged in and pressed in on every side, but we're not crushed. We suffer embarrassments and are perplexed, unable to find a way out but are never overcome by despair. Now, notice here, Paul doesn't say we don't despair. Because over later on, he talked about how they were almost in despair. See, despair means utter hopelessness. You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit may take you to despair and then actually take you under despair 
to prove to you that even despair can't stop him. Paul goes on to say, we are persecuted and driven hard, but we're never deserted. We are struck down, but never struck out or destroyed. Always carrying about in our body the same exposure to death that the Lord Jesus suffered, so that the resurrection life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. He's not talking about the eventual resurrection of our bodies only. He's talking about resurrection power in the midst of these pressures and battles. For we who live and are constantly being handed over to death for Jesus' sake are doing so so that the resurrection life of Jesus also may be manifested through our flesh, which is mortal and weak. The death is actively at work in us, but it is only in order that our life may be actively at work in you. We are assured that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will raise us up also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. For all these things are taking place for your sake, so that the more grace extends to more and more people and multiplies through that, that number, they will all give glory to God. Therefore, we do not become discouraged and wearied out through fear. Though our outward man is progressively decaying and wasting away, our inner self is being progressively renewed day after day. For our light momentary affliction is preparing and achieving for us an everlasting weight of glory. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are visible are temporary, but the things that are invisible are deathless and everlasting. Pressure does three important things for us, if it's in the sanctifying grace of God. Pressure penetrates. Uh, I know this is one of those little cutesy things where everything starts with a P. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> it's kind of like when Mary and I accidentally wear uh, the same color shirts. Uh, it's purely accidental. Uh, I didn't do it on purpose, and I didn't necessarily come up with three Ps so I can have a neat little thing that makes me look like a great teacher. But it will help you to remember pressure does three things. It penetrates it purifies, and it prepares. What do I mean that it, it penetrates? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul says, For the godly grief and the pain which God permitted has produced a repentance in you that leads to deliverance from evil, and it never brings regret. For you can look back now and see what this godly sorrow has done for you and produced in you what eagerness and care to explain and clear yourselves of all involvement in willful sin, of all condoning of evil, what indignation at sin it awoke in you, what alarms it awakened, what yearning to do what is right and to punish evil doing. At every point, you made yourself cleared and guiltless in this matter. Now, I want you to note this. First of all, 
the pressure of the conflict is what caused them to awaken. They were in a stupor. They were in a foolish, worldly, pleasure-seeking mindset. There was no persecution in the Corinthian church, not by a long shot. The Corinthian church was very much like the American church. It was enjoying lots of charismatic manifestations and lots of prosperity and lots of uh, real works of the Spirit, along with a worldliness and a pleasure-seeking that was idolatrous and inexcusable and sexual sin so gross that it was of a nature that even many of the pagans turned their nose up at. And the church was tolerating it and even by their silence uh, affirming it. And maybe even not by their silence, maybe in actually uh, blessing it and affirming it. And Paul says the pressure that you came under was God's merciful work to bring you out of this stupor, this this ignorance, this awakening you to see you're standing on the precipice of a, of a cliff and about to fall over and you wake up out of it. That's the idea here. And it not only woke you out of a sleep that caused you to pay attention to the negative, but moved you in redemptive ways toward the positive. And listen to this. They who had Paul's anger so aroused at their sinful carelessness and indifference and participation in sin at the beginning of this whole issue, Paul tells them, the same people, that now they're being awakened by the pain and their action against sin has made them cleared and guiltless in God's eyes. They have made themselves vessels of honor who previously had been vessels of no honor. And in this case, vessels of real dishonor. That should comfort every one of us. That's good news. Well, the next thing that this pressure does is it purifies by washing away a focus of the past. Now here, I want to go back to the reference in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that we've already cited where Paul says, the foundation of God stands sure that God knows those who belong to him and let all who name the name of the Lord forsake the, the evil of their past. And then Paul explains how to do that. We don't really read that properly. We think we think Paul is saying, uh, you know, forsake the evil of the past, and then the next verse says, flee youthful lust. No, flee youthful lust is a continuation of the thought. How do you forsake the evil and turn from it so that you uh, are a vessel of honor? Well, you, t- you flee youthful lusts. That doesn't necessarily just mean eroticism. The word lust here, youthful lust, we automatically think of in terms of, well, he's talking about turning away from sexual sin. That's obviously part of it. But this has to do more with a a fantasy, nostalgia, romanticism, sentimentality, uh, a preoccupation with your youthful days, or a youthful preoccupation with what a mature person would consider an un, an ignoble, uh, un, unrighteous focus for position or power or prestige or uh, accomplishment. 
And that also would include turning away from old romanticisms and idolatries of the heart that were erotic. Uh, and and as, as history gets farther and farther down the line and, uh, you know, more and more nostalgia is becoming the craze among people of all ages because every decade, you know, uh, when I was a kid, oldies stations played music from the 50s. Uh, then when I was in college, uh, it was all, uh, all the music of the 50s and 60s. And then when I was out of college, it was all the music of the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Now it's just a mishmash. But the point is, all these nostalgic desires to, and I speak of music because I don't think there's anything more powerful to take you back in time than music. But the, And the, there's nothing per se wrong with that except to the degree it keeps you focused on youthful lusts and pulls you back into it. And it may not necessarily be erotic or sexual. It may be romantic or it may be nostalgic. Just sitting around and goo-gooing over the past to the point that you don't live in the present or fulfill your calling. So how do you make yourself a vessel of honor? By fleeing youthful lusts. And uh, includes, of course, as I, I said, the desire for for fame, the desire for attention, for grandiosity. Uh, and that, that all can have an erotic element to it. I, I don't want to labor that. I think that's pretty obvious to most of us. Uh, but then finally, okay, it, it, uh, it penetrates us, shakes us up, awakens us. Then it purifies us, causes us to see idolatry for what it is and to re- reject the, the idolatrous. But then that, those are the, 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 the two negatives, you might say. The, what's the positive? What's the goal of that, this whole thing? Well, it's to prepare us. The final P is to prepare us. We cleanse ourselves of all of the filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit by the spirit of a great promise that we've already talked about from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, and leads into 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. That promise is quoted in that previous verse. If we will come out from among them and be separate and not embrace the unclean, then we will be in a place with God where he can reveal himself as our Father. Not just doctrinally, but we begin to have a relationship. We have a revelation of him, and our revelation produces a relationship with him that makes the past, with all of its worldly counterfeit comforts, pale and fade as we look ahead to our true nature and our true destiny and our true home. We'll turn to nostalgia and lust partly maybe mostly, out of a longing for comfort. Well, how useless a thing does that show itself to be? Eventually, it's always vapid and fading and empty. And how easy it would be for it to become eventually no longer even a temptation once we gain the sight of our true home, our true family, our true father. And that becomes more than just a doctrine. It becomes something we fantasize about, so to speak. 
we stop looking behind us and begin instead to look forward and live in every moment in expectation of our true destiny. For those who have known some besetting sin, such as lust, how might it be if you could become as obsessed with the real that is ahead and eternal that you have no longer any room in your mind or heart for the faults that is behind you and temporal? What if you could be full of lust for God and for heaven? Well, you can. The pressures of life are being used by God's loving hand to mold you into the very kind of person who will lust for God, who have a strong desire for God, one that's so strong it fills your imagination, it fills your waking moments, it takes up room in your head and your heart that nothing else can, can push out. Though your outer man is perishing, your inward man is being renewed day by day while you look not at what is seen, but on what is unseen. Then you become like the people of Hebrews 11. These people all died controlled and sustained by their faith, not having received the tangible fulfillment of God's promises on the earth, only having seen them and embraced them from a great distance by faith, and all the while acknowledging and confessing that they were strangers and temporary residents and exiles upon the earth. Now those people who talk as they did, people who talk like this, plainly speak as if they are in search of a fatherland, their own country. If they had been thinking with nostalgia of the country from which they were immigrants, they would have found some constantly found some way to return to it. But the truth is that they were yearning for a better and more desirable country, that is, a heavenly one. For that reason, God is not ashamed to be called their God and Father. So come out from among them and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't embrace the unclean thing and I will receive you kindly. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Father, I pray for everyone listening now, and myself too, that you will grant us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that the eyes of our heart will be flooded with light, so flooded with light that it dims our vision of the tinsel and tassels and trinkets of the world, that the, the things of the world will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace, and we will be so filled with desire for you that we are automatically becoming vessels of honor. And the pressure, what is the pressure? It was simply a stepping stone on our way home. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.